Lord, we, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We come to you through his merits. We come to you because of your grace. You have called us. You have set us apart. You have commissioned us. You have chosen us for your service. You have called us not only to be saints, but to be your slaves for Christ's sake. That, that, is, that is humbling. That is honorable. That is a reward that we don't deserve, we could never earn, that you have granted to us, you have bestowed upon us, who certainly were not set apart in holiness apart from Christ. We were set apart in our sin. And yet you, you honored us by making us your own. We pray today, I pray today, that that humbling truth would unite us as a church as we are united in Christ. I pray that that unity would uh, abound and be exhibited in humility in this church body. I, I, think, I think the gospel, the reality of the gospel, will sanctify the church practically through humility and through unity. And so I pray today that that would be the case as we study about those two main topics today in the text that we see before us. And God, this is your word. I do not want to mishandle it. I do not want to neglect it. I know I can't cover everything in it. So I, I pray, Holy Spirit, where I leave gaps, you fill in the gaps with your understanding, your direction. And where I speak, where you don't speak, I pray that you would erase that from the memories of those who hear it. And God, I do pray that your pure and unadulterated word will transform your people for the glory of your name and for the good of our souls so that we will be equipped to go after the lost and declare that there is hope in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. It's good to have our visitors here today with us and uh, all of you here in attendance this uh, Labor Day weekend. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here with us to labor joyfully in God's word this morning. As I said, we will be going into the book of Philippians in a, in a few moments, and you can go ahead and, and start by just jumping to that book and, and being prepared for that. Um, but I was thinking about this, and, and I was talking with someone this, this last week who is a non-believer, an unbeliever, who is very interested in the gospel, who is very eager to know more about God's word, and yet he had no real context no real hermeneutic, no real ability to understand how to read God's Word. He had never been taught. And so I thought, you know, I, I need to back up sometimes. We need to back up. I, I realize that most of you here are very, very biblically literate and theologically enriched, and I understand that, but we need to, to never really presume that everyone understands everything we understand at the moment. We had to grow into the knowledge that we've been given and one of the things that I think we overlook so often in the study of the Bible is actually talking about what it is. When we talk about the book of Philippians, it's really not a book. It's a letter. It's a letter. It's an intimate letter. It's a personal letter. It's a pastoral letter. Um, and it's a letter like any other letter. It has salutations and benedictions, and it has content. And in this letter, sometimes as we read through it, we sort of skip past the first few lines and jump right into the heart of it. And Anybody else been guilty of that? I've been guilty of that. 
You know, he's like, okay, I know, he's, what, I know what he's doing here in verse 1, so let's just jump down to uh, this argument in verse uh, whatever. But every word from God is inspired. We believe in the inspiration of all of God's word, his books, his letters, his chapters, his paragraphs, his sentences, his letters, his punctuation marks, every jot and tittle. And we want to always look into every little piece and see what we can see and see what we can understand. I was looking at this and thinking about it, though, and I was thinking, this is really weird for us because there's very few of you in this room, well, there's a few of you, who actually know what it's like to read letters that were written by hand, right? Believe it or not, some of you may even not even know what that looks like. You know, before text messaging, we had email, right? Before email, believe it or not, people literally wrote letters by hand and put them in a box and sent them out across this nation, across this world. It's astounding. And most of you in this room, I say half of you in this room, probably have never done that. And yet that was just a normal practice, even when I was growing up. I remember when I was growing up, I wrote a letter. I'm not going to tell you to who, but it's, it was one of my favorite movie stars. I was convinced that this movie star would be thrilled to receive my letter and would write something back to me personal and send me a picture and autograph it. And so I was, I was writing this letter and I sent it off, went to the mailbox, stuck it in the mailbox. It opens and shuts and you stick stuff in it, right? And I was, I was eagerly anticipating a response from my favorite movie star. So every day, you know, you couldn't go check your inbox. You had to go literally out to a box, right? So I would go out to the mailbox. I would run out to the mailbox after school every single day, open it up, and found nothing but bills and junk mail. I did that for weeks because this letter had to go to California, obviously, right, where all the movie stars are. And it took a long time for that to happen back then. So I was just every day antsy, waiting and waiting for this personal letter from my favorite movie star. And finally it arrived, right? So I run up to the mailbox, I open the mailbox, I pull out the, the letter, I'm like, yes! And I tear it open, and to my surprise, it was a form letter with a stamped autograph of the movie star. <laughs> I was just a little bit disappointed. I was very discouraged, and I felt completely defeated. I thought, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> I'm never doing this again. That's, that's not how the church at Philippi felt when Paul's letter arrived. They weren't disappointed, discouraged, or defeated. When Epaphroditus returned to Philippi personally with a letter from the great apostle Paul, they were edified and encouraged. They had done like what I had done. They had eagerly waited for this letter, waiting eagerly for messengers to come and bring news if the letter is on the way or if, if they've received it already because they needed to hear from the man, the man who brought them the gospel ten years earlier, the man that God used instrumentally to plant a church in Europe, in Macedonia, in Philippi in particular. They looked for him with eagerness. They, they longed to hear from him and hear about his well-being and his instruction. They had heard earlier 
that he had been imprisoned again, right? Paul's always bouncing in and out of prisons, but they had found out that he was imprisoned. And so what they did was they, they immediately, it seems, uh, once they found this out, sent a gift, most likely, again, out of their poverty, because they were known for doing that. Out of their poverty, they scraped together a gift, and they, they put it in the hands of Epaphroditus, and they sent it out to Paul in this prison. And they sent with Paul, or with Epaphroditus, rather, news about what's going on in their church and some of their struggles. And they wanted Paul to write back with news about his condition and with biblical instruction. They needed biblical instruction because they had one issue stirring all the time in this church. No big theological issue. It wasn't a doctrinal issue per se, though it is doctrinal in its nature. They had a problem with personal divisions in the body. They had a problem with unity. They had a problem with pride in the church. And that's, that's always been the case in every church because every church is full of people who are prideful, who want preeminence and don't necessarily want to serve. They want to be served. It's like you coming to a church service. You're not here to be an attendee. You're here to be a participant. You're here to hear the word actively. You need to be leaning into the word, listening to the word, absorbing the word so that you can practice the word when you go out the doors. You're called into this body to be a participant for God's glory. And yet sometimes when you come just trying to receive something for yourself, you step other, over other people to get what you want and ignore them and neglect them and it produces disunity and prideful strife in the body. We have to be protected against that. So God gave us the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians. Just kind of remember some of the history I gave you previously. Um, the church here at Philippi began with retired Roman citizens. Those men and women who lived in this region were considered Roman citizens. They had many privileges because of that. They were very proud of their citizenship. And, and by the time that this letter is written, by the time we re hear Paul writing back to them, remember the church is 10 years old, and by this time the church isn't just full of Romans. There are Jews there. There are non-Romans there. Well, in, in Rome's mind, in the mind of a Roman, in the mind of a, a, a Roman who had been educated in, in Greek philosophies, he considered everyone else as less than himself. They had pride. Pride in their citizenship. It was a real issue here in Philippi. Paul, Paul knows that pride can be destructive. Pride can produce disunity. And, and that's, that's very true in every situation when you have people gathering together in one body. Pride will start climbing over others to get to the top and hurting others along the way. And that was potentially something that could happen here in Philippi. Part of the other thinking process that the Romans had, the Greek thinkers had, is was they despised the idea of being submitted to anyone, despised the idea of being servants. They wanted to be served. The, the attitude could have caused them to live for themselves, not Christ. This attitude could cause them to consider themselves as more important than others. Paul confronts that. Paul knew that this could be a problem. Paul knew that this would lead to pride and disunity in the body. So we come to this letter and we see that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul opens the letter 
by putting pride and disunity to death in one stroke of the pen in his salutation. When this letter came to the church at Philippi, they, they weren't disappointed. They were educated. They were edified. They were humbly united in the salutation. They were humbled by Paul's own title. And, and I pray that as we read this, that Philippians 1 will cultivate humility and unity in our church body as well. And I'm using the word cultivate. I'm going to use that word all the way through. Um, because I think that cultivate might be the, the central theme to the entire book. If you look over at chapter 2 and verse 12, you'll see what I mean. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out. You see that word work out? That means cultivate. 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 Dig down, work it out, knead it, make it, make it strengthened, make it obvious, dig into it. Cultivate your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because, for, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Okay, cultivate your gift from God because God is cultivating it already. God is calling you to cultivate this. God is there with you cultivating this. Cultivate this in all your relationships. You see, your salvation isn't just about you going to heaven. Your salvation is about you serving the body of Christ on earth. Your salvation is about you using your life to glorify Jesus through evangelism on the earth. So he says, cultivate this. And so I think that that's kind of a theme that runs through every little, little portion of, of the book. He, he wants us to cultivate humility, cultivate unity, cultivate praise, cultivate the gospel in our lives. Stir it up. Think about how the gospel relates to your relationships in the body. Do you think more of yourselves than others? Christ didn't. He gave himself up for us, right? Consider Christ. Cultivate that. Do you consider, as you go through the book, that Christ is worth standing firm for, standing up for? Cultivate that. Paul's greeting, we're going to read Paul's greeting there in verses 1 and 2. I think that his very greeting seems to cultivate, number one, Christ-exalting humility and Christ-exalting unity. So I think, I think he wants us to be humble, and I think he wants us to be unified, but I think he wants it to be done so that Jesus is exalted, right? He's saying, be humble because of Christ. Be unified because of Christ. That's what he's saying. Look what it says. Philippians 1.1 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and notice, the Lord Jesus Christ. Servants should be translated douloi, doulos, slave. That's the proper translation there. That's all it means. 
throughout the New Testament. It's what it means when you see it in the Septuagint, in the Old Testament. It means slaves. Slaves were those who were completely dependent upon their master. And Christ here is depicted as a benevolent master. He called Paul and Timothy into this service. And, and Paul starts the letter out this way, trying to emphasize something, I believe. I believe in Philippians 1, 1a, Paul seems to emphasize that, number one, Christ-exalting humility is cultivated, is cultivated by exalting Christ's identity. He does that by contrasting who he is in light of Christ. If, if Paul is a slave, what's that make Christ? Master, right? So he's exalting. He's saying, I'm a slave. I'm a humble, honored slave of the benevolent Master, Jesus Christ. So he's exalting Jesus in his humility. He does that by cultivating Jesus' supremacy. His, his identity is elevated in this statement. And I think the reason that's so is because this church was eager for Paul. Send us Paul. We're a Paul. We are Paul's church. Paul knew that that sinful pride, even in the church, takes form where they boast in their ministers, boast in their leaders. And he wants to put that to death at the very beginning. I am nothing but a slave for Christ Jesus. He wants the church to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ should receive all the praise for the ministry at Philippi. It's the same way here in our church. Nate and I desire not to be named, not to be proclaimed. We want Christ exalted, Christ proclaimed. We want Him to receive the glory for the ministry of this church. Paul cultivates humility here by, by revealing our identity in light of Christ's supremacy, right? Our identity is that we are those who belong to the supreme master, Jesus Christ. He even makes a, an allusion to that in verse 2 when he calls for us to, to rejoice in the grace that we've received and the peace we have from God our Father and the kurios, Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Master. Isn't it interesting that he, he sticks the name, title, rather, Lord in front of Jesus, not in front of God the Father. He's affirming Jesus' deity in stating this. But he's also making this contrast that this is the one in whom I am trusting. This is the one in whom I am working with. And this is why I am doing this. It's for his sake, not for my glory, not for my praise. He is my Lord, my Master, my everything. Look to Jesus, not to Paul, not to Timothy. Paul was going to send Timothy there later because Timothy had a, a like-minded attitude about this church and he wanted to serve them. And, and I think Paul's just removing all possibility of, of pride in their leaders and pointing them to Jesus. I think that's what he's trying to do here. He's calling him Lord. There's, there's a correlation to that over in Revelation. Turn with me there. Notice, notice the, the idea of Jesus being Lord being expanded on and expounded on here in Revelation 22, 3 and 4. This title, Lord, speaking of his, his 
ability to, to reign. That's what this means. In other words, he's sitting on a throne. He is in control. He is the master. He has slaves who serve him that are marked out for his glory, marked out to exalt his name and his gracious work. And those who belong to him are marked out by him for eternity, according to this. This is no longer will there be any thing accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. The Lamb speaking of Jesus. And His slaves will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Jesus is who's being referred to there. The Lamb's name is going to be on our forehead. That is how they marked out a slave in this culture. They tattooed them. They branded them on the forehead to say, he belongs to me, she belongs to me. Jesus says, I am your Lord and you are marked out and you belong to me. You're not your own. You belong to him. You've been purchased with the price that no one could afford except Jesus Christ, right? He gave his life to make us his slaves. Isn't that amazing? He became a slave. That's what Philippians 2 will say. He became a slave for our sake so that we could be his slaves for eternity. Now, slavery gets a bad rap, right, in our culture, and our thinking, because of what happened here in our country. And what happened here was detestable. It was not biblical. It was not even the slavery that's described in the Bible. Yet, nonetheless, we're constantly referred to as slaves owned by Christ. And the reason we have a hard time understanding that and thinking about that is because we have no, never known a benevolent dictator. There is no such thing on this planet because all men are corrupt. Yet here we have Jesus who is the Holy One. He is the Creator and by right owns us anyway, right? But because of our sin, we're enslaved to death and depravity and we can't do anything to get ourselves out of it. So... The owner does something about it. He becomes like us, yet without sin, to rescue us. He becomes a slave for our sake to make us his own. That's, that's amazing. And, and I think going back to Philippians, Philippians 1.1, I think that Paul is just wanting to embed that deeply into the minds of the Philippians so that they do not look at him with a prideful attitude. He, they don't, he doesn't want them to have pride in their leaders. He wants them to have pride in Jesus. That's, that's the way every godly ministry should be established. We should want to decrease as leaders so that Christ would increase in his influence. Paul, Paul begins Philippians by, by cultivating humility, I think, for many reasons. One, I think that Paul wants to cultivate humility to guard himself against pride. And two, I think he's cultivating humility to protect the church, right? Protect them, to instruct them, to strengthen them, and guard them against prideful celebrity pastor worship, okay? And I also think that he obviously is cultivating humility to exalt Christ's supremacy. He wants them to understand the relationship between he and Christ. He is but the servant of the Lord Jesus, so he wants, he wants the Philippians to understand Jesus is the founder of the church. He's the founder of this church, too. Nate and I didn't start the church. Christ built the church. 
Christ adds to the church. Christ will continue doing that when we're gone because he is the Lord of the church. So he wants them to know that. And, and he, he, he wants them to receive this instruction, this letter, as if it is coming from Jesus who commissioned him as a servant to deliver it to them so that he is not praised and they can't be proud. You guys ever think about, maybe you don't, maybe it's something that maybe, maybe Nate and I have to, to bear the weight of sometimes more than you. Um, you ever think about how Paul struggled with pride because of his leadership, because of his role, because of who God called him to be as the founder, right? as the church planter, as the evangelist, as the apostle, as the apologist. He must have had major battles with pride. I mean, you, you know, we think of him as being so perfect sometimes, but you read the text, he struggles. He struggles. And he is constantly having to Think about Christ so that He is not elevating Himself. He struggled with pride, just like you do, just like I do. He had such a struggle with pride. If you turn over to 2 Corinthians, I'll show you something. In 2 Corinthians, there's proof that he had, he had a severe battle with pride his whole ministry, in his whole lifetime as a Christian, because of what God had given to him. The struggle was so great that God, notice, would send a messenger of Satan. God sent the messenger of Satan to buffet, to humble, to make Paul aware of his reliance on Christ to keep him from elevating himself. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. It says, So, to keep me from becoming conceited, prideful, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. He had given, God had given him these great revelations that we read right here before us. The revelation of Scripture that we have before us. He says, because of this, and, and other revelations he couldn't even talk about, because of this, to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. And he tells us what the thorn is. The thorn was a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. He repeats it again, doesn't he? Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul says, I I have a battle with conceit, with pride because of these revelations. It's difficult. And God in His mercy made me weak so that I would have to rely on Him and not on myself. I would rest in Christ to accomplish what I need to do in the ministry. Instead of trusting in my revelations, trusting in my oratory, trusting in my abilities, my gifts, my talents. He struggled with this. And he knows, he knows that pride is this, this corrosive acid that sets in the heart of all of us. And it will eat away at a church from the inside out if it's not dealt with. That happened at the church at Corinth. Go back to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. He describes this corrosive acid of pride and how it infected the church there in 3.1. Look what it looks like. And this is the way we see it today. This is the way we see it today in many churches. 
But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And I even now, and even now, rather, you are not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while, while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in human way, in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely fleshly human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Slaves through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. They're slaves. They're instruments in the master's hand. But only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. God, he says in the next verse, is the skilled builder, the skilled master who builds his church. The church isn't built on Dr. MacArthur. The church is not built on R.C. Sproul. The church is not built on Nate Carper or Randy Tyler. The church is built on Christ, on the truth that God has revealed. And, and, and Paul knows if this isn't emphasized, we will, in our idolatrous hearts, we will raise up idols of our leaders. We'll begin to think that the church will not exist if this man or this leader is gone. I've got good news for you. The church will persevere to the end and men will pass away because the leader of the church is eternal and he is always at work in his people. And, and that's, that's a humbling truth. And it's supposed to cultivate humility in those who serve the church and protect them against pride, thinking that it all rides on them. That needed to be emphasized at Philippi. I think that's why Paul identifies himself as a doulos, a slave of Christ. He and Timothy are slaves of Christ. Go back with me there, Philippians 1. In, in, Paul's, mind, in Paul's mind, servanthood equals slavery, equals serving the master, right? That's, that's why he uses the word here, doulos. He says there in verse 1, Paul and Timothy douloi or doulos singular or plural of christ jesus and, and doulos stressed humble honorable service to almighty god in the jewish mind in the jewish mind that's what this meant it was an honor to say that you are yahweh's exclusive slave you have been chosen by Yahweh to do His will on the earth. That was an honor in the Jewish mind. And it was humbling. Because Paul understood his own sin, his own depravity, his own rebellion against the Lord Jesus. He murdered Christ's people. And yet Christ calls him his own. This, this meant to Paul in his mind that if you were owned or chosen by the Almighty God, Almighty God, you were chosen for a glorious purpose to elevate Christ. This happened in the Old Testament. The, the leaders were chosen to be 
servants, and they were honored because of their humble calling. Think about it. I've got three of them here for you. Moses, Abraham, and David. Look with me quickly at Joshua. Joshua 22. Joshua 22. These men were considered slaves. Now, if you were to talk to a Jewish person today, an Orthodox Jew in particular, and you asked them about Moses, would they say, yeah, yeah, he was okay. I mean, he was, he was one of the leaders. No. He was the one who gave us the law. The law came through Moses. Well, and if you said something about Abraham, you know, Abraham was, yeah, you know, Abraham was really a small guy in the, in the Old Testament. It wasn't that important. No, he's the father of the faith. He's the father of all of us. What about David? David was a ruler, but, you know, not that important. No, David was this king, the king of Israel. The Bible describes all three of those men as slaves. Slaves of God. Yahweh's exclusive slaves. Look what it says, Joshua 22, 4. And these are, you don't see this so much in the English, but in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, you see this come out. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers, and he has promised them, as he has promised them, Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possessions lie, which Moses, the slave of the Lord, gave you on the other side of Jordan. One of the most elevated men in the Old Testament was a slave of the Lord, according to Scripture. You think Moses wanted to be elevated? No. No, don't pick me. Don't pick me. God says, I own you. You're mine. You're going to be my voice. You're going to be my hands, my feet. You're going to go do my will. I think Moses is happy that he was a slave of God. Look at Psalm 105. Psalm 105 speaks about Abraham being a slave of God. Psalm 105, 42. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, he remembered Abraham, his slave, his doulos, his slave. Psalm 89, go to Psalm 89. In Psalm 89, we see David, the great king, the ruler, right? He is called a slave of God. 89.3 says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my slave. Just so we understand, this this has been God's perspective from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and it's fulfilled in Christ. To be a slave means to be chosen out by God. Picked out by Him. Picked out for His service. This This is an honor for mankind. What, what do we deserve from the Creator? Do we deserve His choice? Do we deserve His affection? Do we deserve to be united in His family even as a slave, much less a son adopted as sons in Christ? No, we don't deserve that. We deserve His wrath. And so we need to understand something. When we come to the New Testament, we see terms like this in Paul's writing. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. We need to recognize that all Christians, all believers, are identified like this. You are a slave for Christ. That means your will is not your will any longer. Your will belongs to God. 
And by His grace, He gives us His Spirit and His Word to conform our will so that now we pursue what He wants rather than what we lusted after in our flesh continually. We're free. That's freedom. Freedom is now doing what the Creator has called us to do. See, to will is human. Volitional choice is human. But it's depraved. To will God's will, to will righteousness, to will obedience, to will sanctification, that's divine. That's from God. We can't do that apart from His intervention. And so He intervenes and He calls us to Himself, makes us His own, purchases us with His Son's own blood. And that's an honor. And it's humbling. And Paul wants them to remember that. Paul wants the church to remember that your servants are nothing more than blood-bought slaves like you. Though some servants may have differing gifts, that's fine. We're all in this the same way, in Christ. His slaves, laboring together. This is going to cultivate humility, and it will cultivate unity. The pastor is not the most spiritual person in the church. Probably not even close. Those who are growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ are in Christ's grace. And we're all there. We're all able to grow in that together. And that's what unifies us. That's what causes us to use our gifts together in the body to magnify Jesus. Now, I know slavery doesn't sound honorable, right? But when you compare it to the reality, when the Bible speaks about our condition apart from Christ... It never speaks about us being free. No one is uninfluenced. Everyone is dominated and influenced by an outside source. Okay? We're influenced by the world. We're influenced by Satan. And we're influenced internally by our sinful nature. So whether we realize it or not, biblically speaking, we have never been anything else but slaves. Slaves to the flesh. Slaves to sin. Slaves to Satan. Slaves to depravity that leads to death. Every one of us are slaves. But whose slave are you? Are you a slave of Christ, redeemed from all these things? Controlled, dominated by Him? Are you a slave of sin, Satan, and depravity, controlled by your evil lusts? If so, repent. Turn to the only one who can rescue you from that deadly, deadly depravity that lies within your heart, that enslaves you, traps you like in a dungeon. Puts you in a dungeon full of darkness where there is no light so you cannot see the glorious truth of reality. That sin blinds us to the truth of who Jesus is. And it takes God Himself penetrating the darkness. Coming into our soul and regenerating our heart hearts before we can see the glorious truth about Jesus Christ. When that happens, there is a transformation and there is a, there is a transference that goes along with that. He transfers us out of the darkness and into the light and now we see the glorious truth about God and we want to pursue Him with all of our strength. And though we fall short, we know that Christ never fell short. He, he accomplished it so we trust in Him. We look to Him continually we want to serve Him now and forever because of this? That, that, that should humble us. If, if you desire righteousness, 
You love truth. You love the church. You love Jesus. It's because God has intervened and He has broken the bonds that held you in darkness and brought you into His glorious kingdom. You couldn't rescue yourself. You couldn't do it. That, that's, that's the humbling side of this. Paul says, I am a slave of Christ. I could be nothing else. I couldn't redeem myself. Because He redeemed me, I belong to Him now and I rejoice in this blessed slavery. It takes humility to admit that. It takes humility to admit that because we have to first admit that we are already slaves of sin. Slaves by birth. Slaves by choice. Look what Psalm 51 says. Psalm 51 Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. This is original sin. It's imputed through Adam to us. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I was born spiritually enslaved to sin. My heart could choose nothing else but sinful, selfish desires. I'm a slave to my sin. I'm a slave to my depravity. I'm a slave and that depravity infects everything I do. My, my thinking, my emotions, my actions. And as much as I try, I can't erase that stain from my soul. I can try to be good. I can go to church. I can do all the right things. I can follow religious practice. But it will never rescue me from this slavery. I can't Get rid of sin on my own. It is impossible. I'm a slave to it. But what's not possible for me is possible for God. And we have to admit that. That's, that's part of our gospel message. We have to help people see that unless they admit they are incapable of rescuing themselves, they'll never be saved. They cannot rescue themselves. We need someone who's greater than us to rescue us from us, right? God sent someone to do that. God sent God the Son. Jesus, God the Son, God incarnate, rescued us from slavery by coming to purchase us with His own blood. We know this. But this is important to cultivating humility. All right? Identifying that Jesus is Lord isn't enough. It's not. The world, whether they like it or not, one day will bow before Him and say, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, according to Philippians 2. But that is not going to save them. That's just their confession that they've rebelled against Him. Identifying Him as our Master is insufficient. We also have to recognize it's the Master who became our Savior. Jesus became like us, yet without sin, to rescue us by becoming a servant on our behalf. That should cultivate joyful humility in every Christian. And that should affect the way we live in the church. It should promote unity. It should cause leaders to be humbled by the privilege of being Christ's slaves and serving His people. It should cause His people to rejoice that Jesus has given them a voice to speak to Him and they are reconciled to Him because of Christ and now they are able to serve Him in the body and in the world for His glory 
You've been chosen by God. You've been purchased by His Son's blood. You belong to Him. You're His slave for eternity. And that that slave owner that we serve, He promises all those who serve Him will be rewarded because of the work of the servant Jesus Christ. See, in our slavery, we still can't please God. We still can't honor God enough. We have to look to the greater slave, which was Jesus. This slave came into the world and obeyed the master's will from the beginning to the end. And his slavery, his service, pleased the Father in our place. And therefore, we, we count that as our own and we trust in that so that we will receive the reward of the Lamb when we stand before Him. We stand before God, covered in the righteousness of the slave, Jesus Christ, our substitute. And He is not just our Savior again. He is our King, our Master. Turn with me to Colossians. I'm never going to get to part B. I'm just going to tell you that right now, but we're going to stop in just a moment. In Colossians 1... I think we see something fascinating that I think was always in the mind of the Apostle Paul when it came to his service. This cultivated humility because he identifies his master as his savior here. He identifies the sovereign king as the one who rescues sinners like him out of slavery and sin and darkness and depravity. And this sovereign king does this personally. He does this sacrificially. He does this powerfully. And we see that in this text. Colossians 1.11 I think this, this, this maintained humility when the Apostle Paul began to struggle with pride. This brought him back to recognize that he is in the service of the Master who became his Savior. Personally, sacrificially, powerfully. He says, may you be strengthened with all power. Now see, he's, he's saying this, this is going to be the power behind your sanctification, behind your humiliation, behind your service, your unity, your desire to serve the church. May you be strengthened with all power according to the glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He wants us to have joy in this humiliation, joy in this Suffering for Christ as his slave. He says, giving thanks to, notice, he give, give thanks to the Father who has qualified you. God qualified you. You didn't qualify yourself. God qualified you by sending forth his Son. He credited Christ's work to your account. He qualified you. The owner purchased you through his qualifications so that you could share in the inheritance of the saints in lights. God does it. Christ qualifies for it. You benefit from it. This should cultivate humble joy. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. The King does this. And it was costly. Because He says in verse 14, It's in Him or in whom we have redemption. It's in His Son, His beloved Son. We have redemption. We've been purchased back. We have the forgiveness of sins. The King is stating that He is setting us free based on the qualifications of the slave who was punished in our place, the beloved Son in whom we have redemption. He paid the price sacrificially 
He set us free personally, and he did it powerfully. Look at verse 15. Look at this. This is Jesus. This is the one the king sent personally to, to bring you into his kingdom and should now call you to humbly serve him. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the preeminent, that's what it means, of all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created. Wait a minute. This, this, this Savior is the creator. This Savior is the master. This is the king. The king's son, the king here is sending us his son, and the son is the king. God the Son. All things were created through Him, it says, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. <laughs> this is powerful. This is the owner of your soul. Here, here we see God the Son in His glory. We see His power, His dominion, His rulership, and we see His forgiveness toward us who believe. Verse 17 says, And Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together, and Jesus is the head of the, of the body, the church. That cultivates humility. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent, have the first place, as Master and Savior. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus, or through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. Look how powerful our King's sacrifice was. He made peace by the blood of His cross. His righteous life, His obedient servanthood, His perfection in our place granted us peace by His death on the cross. And you who were alienated, that's all of us, that's every human being except for Christ. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Jesus has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. Here's the purpose clause. In order to present you Holy, set apart, sacred, consecrated, chosen by God for His service, and blameless, and above reproach before Him. This, this King became our Savior. And that will cultivate humility. It won't cultivate complaining against the Master's commands. It'll cultivate Praise when He calls you into His service. The Master who calls you was the Savior who purchased you. God the Son. God the Son was sent by God the Father to redeem us, to carry us out of slavery, out of depravity, out of enslavement to sin, and to set us free to serve the King. That's what we're going to get into next week when we go into the last, last part of verse 2. The king's son became the servant to set us free from the dominion of sin and set us free to pursue God, to serve the king, the creator, the maker, the master. 
think this is astounding. I think, I think this is always in the mind of the person or the, the leader who is truly humble. I'm not truly humble, okay? I can admit that. You can see that. Um, but I'll tell you, trying to come up here and talk to you about what Jesus Christ has done to save me and to save you and has promised us in His Word and how He's called us into His service, that, that thrills my soul and it makes me so grateful to be His slave. It humbles me. <laughs> Who am I? Who are you? That the King would die for you. That the King would serve you so that you could serve Him forever. You could be brought into this relationship with Him that will never cease because He suffered once on the cross in your place. If that doesn't cultivate humility and, and joyful humility and, and active service and unity, I don't really know what will. And I think that's what Paul's point is in that little phrase in the first part of verse 1 is, you know, Paul and Timothy were slaves of Christ. This is an honor for us. We're nobody, but we, we belong to somebody. We belong to the king. And the king has written you a letter to let you know he loves you, he cares about you personally, and I get to deliver it to you. And, and, and church, that is your honor when you deliver the gospel. When you go out, you're the letter bearer. You're the servant. You're Epaphroditus, bringing the good news to the lost. That should cultivate humility. And joy. Let's pray that it does that. Lord, we, we thank you. Thank you for every phrase, for every revelation that points to Jesus. And we know that all Scripture does. Lord, give us discernment and discipline to see it. We, we pray this for the glory of Christ for the good of our souls. We, we need humility. We need to cultivate humility. We need to be united in our service to glorify Jesus. And humility is where we begin. And that humility, I believe, comes to us when we contemplate who we belong to in light of what you did to make that happen. How you, how you purchased us to make us your own. You're not just Lord. You're Lord and Savior of every believer. And it is a privilege and it is an honor to be called your slave. There's no greater privilege in all the world than to be called Yahweh's exclusive property. You made us to glorify Jesus we lived in our sin and depravity, could not do what you made us to do, and so you intervened through the person and the work of your Son, and you made us what we could never be on our own, and we thank you for that this morning. Because now, now we can truly begin to glorify you through humility. And one day that will be perfected in glory, and we long for the day that we don't fight with pride. And that Christ is supreme. Christ is preeminent in our ministries, in our motives, in our interactions with others. Until, until that day, I pray that you would cultivate 
Christ-exalting humility in the heart of all of us, especially me. Let, let Christ be glorified today, I pray in Jesus' name. Bye.